Hello and welcome to Science Conversations, a series examining the intersection of science and faith. I'm Dr Barry Harker and my guest today is Dr John Ashton. This is my tenth conversation with Dr Ashton, based upon his book, Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. Last time we noted that erosion rates, sedimentation rates and some other evidences conflict with radiometric age dates. We also looked briefly at the problems with radiometric dating. Today, Dr. Ashton will address briefly the accuracy of carbon-14 dating before outlining problems with the Big Bang model. Dr. Ashton is a chemist with a PhD in epistemology, a branch of philosophy dealing with the nature of knowledge and truth. Welcome again, John. Hi, Barry. Good to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation today. We're tidying off the issue of radiometric dating and then going on to the Big Bang. John, we've discovered that radiometric dating does not work for rocks of a known age. Let's turn now to carbon-14 dating. Mm -hmm. Could you explain how carbon-14 dating works and what it's used for? Well, carbon-14 dating has a much shorter half-life system than the other rocks uh, dating methods, uh, such as potassium argon and uh, so forth. These other dating systems have half-lives in the order of tens to hundreds of millions of years and even more. Whereas the carbon-14 system has a half-life of only 5,730 years or thereabouts. And so it's used to date much younger samples, such as historical samples of... uh, Anything that contains carbon, so that includes plant material, clothing, bones, uh, wood, these sort of uh, things. And it can also be used for limestone and, and shells because they contain calcium carbonate and so things like corals, these things can be dated with uh, carbon-14 dating. So it's generally used to analyse samples that are known to be very recent so in, in a historical sense. Does it work for things that are, that are of a known age, like we would expect it to if it was accurate? Yes, it seems to. There's a reasonably good uh, correlation uh, for historical um, samples back, you know, the past um, thousand years or so. A lot of early work uh, was done with carbon-14 dating before they had the most accurate uh, methods of measuring carbon-14, which involves the atomic mass spectrometry. Um, And so really the most reliable results are post uh, the 1980s. Uh, so that's fairly uh, fairly significant, uh, where we've had much more accurate mass spectrometers and we can uh, much more accurate... um, Uh, methods of analysis uh, of the actual samples. So in in recent times, yes, we've been uh, been dating samples and we get reasonably close uh, correlation as as far as I understand. Okay. Now you cite evidence that some fossils that are dated at millions of years contain carbon-14. You also write that samples from supposed different geological periods give a similar carbon-14 age. This indicates that these fossil samples are much younger than the ages assigned to them, doesn't it? Well, this is a a really, really fascinating 
um, discovery with regard to the radiometric dating. So a number of studies have been done now where people have taken rocks uh, or, or samples that have been dated according to the, the fossil ages as millions of years, and yet when they're dated by the uh, carbon-14 method, then they come back as only, say, 40 or 50,000 years old. So this is, um, this is, this is really interesting. And um, particularly studies that have come out just in the past five years or so where they have actually dated um, uh, dinosaur material. So we've actually... Uh, removed carbon from the uh, preserved extracts of uh, the dinosaur bones. So remember we talked about uh, the soft tissues. Now these soft tissues contain carbon. And the fascinating thing is that when they analyse the um, these tissues and carbon-14 date them, they get ages again that are only in the tens of thousands of years. So a, a classic example was um, a large um, marine lizard that was uh, the remains removed from a, a, an island um, up near the North Pole. And the conventional dating of that fossil was 70 million years. Uh, but yet when the sample was carbon-14 dated, the results came back at only 25,000 years. And so this was by researchers at the University of Lund in Sweden. Now, since that report came out, um, a group of scientists uh, from Europe, uh, from several universities, uh, took samples of dinosaur remains from different parts of the world and that contained soft tissue and they found measurable amounts of carbon-14 in all these soft tissues. Now, and again, they gave dates around, you know, the 25, 30, 40,000 years. And yet these dinosaur fossils were typically all older than 70 million years, uh, some up to 130 million years. So, and, and that paper was uh, published, uh, uh, was presented at a, a major um, uh, geological conference. Uh, for memory, it was in Malaysia a couple of years ago. So, and uh, the interesting thing was that these specimens were from around the world, from different parts of the world. Uh, different locations, and they all consistently gave uh, uh, carbon-14 ages uh, in this in this range, and not in the millions of years range. Now, the other fascinating thing is that a, a fellow that um, contributed to my book in six days, why fifty scientists choose to believe in creation, Dr. Paul Guillem. He's actually an emergency uh, medicine physician and teaches emergency medicine at Loma Linda University. And he was also very interested in uh, carbon-14 dating. It was sort of a research hobby of his to, uh, to research the papers and reports. And he did quite an extensive study of uh, 70 carbon-14 dating results that were published since 1984. So that's using the modern techniques. Um, the, uh, he published the study uh, about 2001 uh, from memory. Now, 
These were samples that were all in the in the published uh, scientific literature, looking at samples or specimens that were a hundred thousand years up to millions of years old, and they typically gave carbon fourteen ages of only forty to fifty thousand years. Now the other now there were over seventy measurements that he re- reviewed, seventy uh, research papers I should say that he reviewed. So it's quite a large number. Uh, from a number of universities, a number of different studies. And what he commented was that it's interesting that these samples were all assigned different ages according to their position in the geological column, but yet they all came back with approximately the same carbon-14 age of forty to 50,000 years. Now, again, this would exactly fit our biblical flood scenario, that in actual fact all these rocks were laid down at the same time. And it also fits very well the observation that when we look at these multiple layers, such as in the Grand Canyon, they're all sitting on top of one another as if they were laid down more or less in succession, very close Mm. together, because there's Mm. no signs of erosion. So we've got this fascinating uh, correlation there. Um, I've seen other results where... There's wood has been preserved, say, in a lava flow. Now, we can actually date the lava flow with radiometric dating. And the the dating for the lava flow has been millions of years, and yet the dating for the wood has been, say, 30,000 years by the carbon-14 dating. So we've got, we've, we've got a major problem uh, with the interpretation of um, carbon-14 dating, well, of radiometric dating. But why I think the carbon-14 dating is far more accurate is that we understand more clearly the basis of how this works and the assumptions that are involved. In other words, the initial concentrations of the uh, carbon-14, we have very accurate measurements of its half-life. And the bottom line is that on the basis of the current levels of carbon-14 in the atmosphere, we know that after 100,000 years, there would be no detectable carbon-14 left. So what it means is with a, when we say the half-life is 5,500 years, we means that the, if we take the level of carbon-14 that there is in the atmosphere at the moment, after 5,730 years, there'll only be half the amount left in a specimen. And perhaps I should back up a little bit and explain how carbon-14 works as well. So in the atmosphere, there is carbon-14. Now, carbon-14 is formed by the action of cosmic rays striking the upper atmosphere. And these cosmic rays are high-energy, positively charged particles that are hitting the upper atmosphere, and when they strike atoms in the upper atmosphere, they then emit high-energy neutrons. Some of these high-energy neutrons then strike nitrogen atoms in the upper atmosphere. And what happens is they knock out a proton from the nucleus of that atom. Now, the type of element that an atom is, is defined by the number of protons in the nucleus. So carbon has six protons in the nucleus. Nitrogen has seven protons in the nucleus. So if one of these high-energy neutrons knocks out a proton from the nucleus of the nitrogen atom, 
that atom now becomes a carbon atom. But nitrogen has a mass of 14, so it now becomes a carbon atom with a mass of 14 instead of carbon 12, which is the more common form. Now this is your carbon-14, which is now radio, uh, r radioactive, um, and it slowly decays. That uh, neutron that's there, or one of the neutrons there, slowly breaks down back to a proton and emits a beta particle or an electron. Now, what it says is that after 5,730 5, years, half of those radioactive atoms will have decayed back to carbon, uh, back to nitrogen. And so that's, that's the principle of carbon-14 dating. Now, when uh, that carbon, uh, radiometric carbon, uh, radioactive carbon rather, gets into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide, it's taken up by the plants and animals eat the plants and so it gets into the animal chain as well. And so essentially plants, uh, living plants and living animals are in equilibrium with the carbon-14 in the atmosphere. So they have the same ratio of carbon-14 in their tissue. We have that same amount in our bodies and in our clothing. <laughs> but once something dies, it's no longer exchanging these nutrients and so the amount of carbon-14 there stays fixed and it then just decays away. So if we found something with half the current level of carbon-14 in it, and we measure that very accurately with a mass spectrometer, then we would say it was 5,730 years old. If we found that there was only a quarter of the level, then we would say it was 11,460 years old. So that's how it, how it works. So the smaller the amount that remains, the older the sample. Now what it also means is that after 16, 17 cycles, because the initial concentration of carbon-14 is so low, the amount of carbon-14 remaining will virtually be down to one or two atoms which will not be detectable by our, our very accurate mass spectrometers. It will be below their detection limit. So it's the fact that we actually find measurable amounts of carbon-14, we, we find plenty of it there, enough to calculate these ages, means that in absolute terms, these samples must be less than 100,000 years old. So what we have with the carbon-14 dating is a very accurate, absolute measurement of, of a limit to age, at least. So it means that the, these samples must be uh, uh, less than 100,000 years old. And yet, according to the other radiometric dating methods and the fossil dating record, which again was based on sedimentary rates estimates, they give millions of years, and that's, the, as we can see, they're all based on unproven assumptions, um, and, you know, the data there is very, very fuzzy. We saw before that there is a lot of inconsistency. You can get hundreds of millions of years difference in ages for the same rocks, just using different methods with radiometric dating, whereas the carbon-14 dating is a lot more consistent 
and we can see there is an absolute upper limit for it. So in my mind, this provides very, very powerful samples that these, uh, very, very powerful evidence that these samples um, and these specimens of uh, the dinosaurs and so forth are, are much, much younger than um, claimed to be according to the geological column. So the coal and the diamonds that have measurable carbon-14 content then would have an upper age of 100,000 years. But there's also some evidence to suggest that those dates can be revised downwards. There's something in your book to suggest that there was a higher carbon content in the biosphere in the past. What's the significance of that? Okay, well, yes, let's um, have a look at that. Because the... Coal is believed to be, the, you know, the black coal, at least 30 million years plus, up to, say, 300 million years. Um, and diamonds are believed to be billions of years old, uh, typically two and a half to three billion years old or 3,000 million years old. They, uh, those samples were generally not carbon-14 data because they, they knew, well, they, they shouldn't detect any carbon-14 there. But... Um, uh, just over 15 years ago, uh, several studies were done of the coal, the, um, the coal samples that are actually preserved at Penn State uh, University. These are the coal reference samples that have been taken from mines across the United States where they've taken very large slabs of coal, stored them under argon and have um, and they're preserved there for, for research purposes. Now they took about um, a dozen uh, or samples from a dozen different um, uh, of these coal specimens and analysed them for carbon fourteen. And again, they got ages around the forty or fifty thousand years for these coal samples that were th- over thirty million years old. Now the same amazing results were obtained for diamonds. They took diamonds from uh, freshly out of De Beers mines. They took alluvial diamonds, and uh, diamonds are very hard um, elements; are not likely to be contaminated. Again, when they were analysed, they gave ages in the order of fifty, sixty thousand years by carbon fourteen dating. So we've got massive differences. Now, one of the things about the coal is we find around the world massive coal deposits. And this suggests that the carbon dioxide content in the past, uh, in the atmosphere, was much higher. Now, just um, in the uh, in the newspaper, uh, and I think it was on the news too, I, uh, just um, two weeks ago, a, a, a leading Australian scientist working in climate change was pointing out that the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that we're producing due to um, the increased burning of fossil fuels now in the world, Um, if this continues on for another, at the same rate, uh, for another five years or so, by 2020, if we went to date a T-shirt that somebody is wearing today, it would come out with the age of about the same time as William the Conqueror a thousand years ago. Why? Because this increased carbon dioxide is actually diluting the levels of carbon-14 in the atmosphere. And the lower the age in the atmosphere gives you an artificially 
older age. Mm-hmm. So what this uh, scientist was saying, that we could date a T-shirt that we know, you know, came from cotton, that was, uh, you know, harvested <laughs> a year ago, so uh, maybe, you know, a couple of years ago, so it would give a zero age, and yet we would find now, compared to the standards that we're using for carbon-14 levels, the level now would be lower because of the uh, lower level of carbon-14 in the atmosphere, which we would then calculate as being a 1,000 years old, when in actual fact we know it's, what, a year old, you know? Mm. Now, this, mm. is, this is quite fascinating. So, again, this, the fact that we know that these levels were much higher in the past, these older ages, in actual fact, would have to be corrected further and brought down younger. Mm. Um, the other fascinating thing is, too, that we're, we're often quite happy to, uh, to go out into the, you know, the bush here and, and date some um, in, indigenous campsite or remains um, uh, and this sort of thing in a cave or, you know, in a cave in Europe and say, well, it's, you know, 40,000 years old and this sort of thing. Uh, but yet we get really upset when people find the same ages or even younger in the carbon from dinosaurs. Mm. <laughs> so really we've got, we know that these ages all have to be brought forward. Um, there's actually more too. We, the carbon, uh, the cosmic ray flux hitting the uh, Earth is determined by the Earth's magnetic field. So the Earth's magnetic field has protected us from cosmic rays in the past. Um, and we know that the Earth's magnetic field is declining now. It's declined about 6% since 1900. So again, if that was much stronger in the past, that would give us, would have repelled more cosmic rays, which means, again, there would have been less carbon-14 formed in the atmosphere, which again gives us, on the basis of our interpretation today, an artificially older age. Mm. Mm. So when we take these factors in, and again, we can't know accurately, and this, and this is the important thing, we can't know for sure on the basis of any dating method that we do today, absolute ages, unless there was a historical witness. But what we do know from these methods, that they provide limits for the maximum ages. And when we allow for some of these corrections and make estimates, it pulls these radiocarbon ages that we're getting of, you know, 25, 30, 40,000 years back to four or 5,000 years ago, which brings us right into alignment with the biblical date for the flood. So in my view, this is very, very powerful evidence. When we combine this with the fact we're finding soft tissues in dinosaur, we're finding you know, blood remains, bits of DNA, all these long-chain polymers which would normally break down over time, especially over millions of years. Um, we have the, 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 the parallel layers of the sediments with very little signs of erosion in between. We have the examples of fossils of trees growing up through what would otherwise be thousands of years of, of layers. Um, when we combine this with our carbon-14 dating from so many samples around the world that are giving these consistent ages and the important point that even though according to the geological column they're supposedly millions of years apart yet they all give the same carbon-14 age approximately it all points back 
to the picture that the Bible paints of the Global Fund and in recent years. And there's certainly not enough time to have evolution take place, is there? Even, exactly. even with these upper limits. Exactly. So, so these are serious anomalies that you've described over the last couple of sessions. They're very, very serious problems for evolution. The, what we see from the data that we can measure here and now, there definitely isn't enough time for evolution. The, the evidence of evolution in the fossil record is not there, like the gradual change of animals. We don't see the gradual development of insects. We don't see the gradual development of turtles, or we don't see the gradual developments of so-called dinosaurs changing into birds. Um, you know, there, there'd have to be a lot of steps. The amount of genetic information that has to be changed uh, to uh, f- to change the code from a dinosaur into the code of the bird and for all the feathers, and that is enormous. There'd have to be absolutely trillions of mutations uh, producing all little bits of new information according to evolutionary theory. It's just not there. It's just totally missing. And as I've mentioned in the past, you know, we've had top paleontologists like Barbara Stahl at Harvard and um, David Rope, uh, who was uh, uh, president of the uh, U.S. Paleontological Society for many years, um, in, and in recent times, as if these were you know back in the olden days in the 1800s or anything, this in modern times, uh, with modern data saying yes, the evidence isn't there of evolution in the fossil record. When we put this all together, we, we've got a very, very, very strong picture that supports the biblical account. Mm. So let me just tidy off this whole. This whole session on on radiometric dating, we've discovered a huge disparity between erosion and sedimentation rates, their calculations, and radiometric dating calculations. You also write that combined with DNA mutation rates, the discovery of soft tissue and dinosaur remains, and historical evidence for a global flood, that this all points to a massive extinction event just a few thousand years ago, consistent yes. with what the Bible talks about. Exactly. Mm. Okay, let's turn now to the Big Bang Theory. This is one of those theories that I'm sure everyone wants to understand but finds it difficult to understand. Uh, In reading your account, I I found it very clear. But tell us what the Big Bang Theory attempts to explain. Yes, the Big Bang Theory is uh, persists in our textbooks um, and in our school classrooms as a an explanation of how the universe came to be because really scientists don't have any other explanation that comes uh, close to explaining how we can be here other than the biblical account. And so they cling to the Big Bang Theory despite the growing evidence that um, it just doesn't work. Um, They do these calculations and predict something um, they go out through, have a look through the telescopes to try to observe it, and uh, very rarely do they they find the the evidence. Matter of fact, I I think I read a statement in one of the science uh, journals or one of the papers uh, critical of the Big Bang theory that not a single prediction of the Big Bang theory had been verified by experimental observation. So that's why they're having to have all these fudge factors involved in the theory. Yes, well, the latest one I understand is uh, dark photons. <laughs> so we've got dark energy, dark matter, and um, and now we've got dark photons. And 
So these, these are having, having to be brought into the theory to help explain the observations, aren't they? Yes, they're very dark because nobody knows what they are and no one's seen them and they've never been measured. So tell, so, us, about, tell us about <laughs> the Big Bang. It's a joke, really. Tell us about the Big Bang and this, the supposed process by which it took place. I understand that the theory predicts or assumes that from the Big Bang, from the singularity that exploded, that we have all the elements that make up the universe. Tell us about it. Yes, that's right. There's the common, um, perhaps, Big Bang scenario is a hot Big Bang theory where you have a singularity. So a singularity just refers to a one-off event where you had, for some reason, a massive amount of energy uh, expanded and and the space as well expanded in a fourth dimension and this energy uh, coalesced into hydrogen atoms and then those hydrogen atoms uh, coalesced into um, formed um, helium and then the uh, and higher elements under the influence of gra- gravity were synthesized fused uh, and you had fusion reactions occurring to produce the elements and these elements condensed into the um, stars and eventually planets. So it's a completely naturalistic theory. It, it assumes that there was no divine intervention. Um, it doesn't purport to explain where the singularity came from, no. um, as I understand it, but mm. there was nothing, mm. essentially, but then something formed. How did that form? I mean, yes, this, is a, well, this is a problem, isn't it? Well, there's different. I, I guess there, there's a there's a, com, a a couple of issues there. So when we look at that, that's that's the real Big Bang. Well, that's the Big Bang theory as it's described. In many people's minds, though, the Big Bang theory is a little bit different. It's subtly different, and I'll explain this. Many people think that there was this energy explosion. Um, and this intense burst of energy expanded in space and um, converted into uh, matter, and then that matter condensed into the stars and planets. But that's not the Big Bang theory that is um, described actually in the textbooks, but that's how many people understand. Now, most many listeners probably didn't pick up the difference. The difference is in the latter version, you have energy expanding in space. In the true Big Bang theory, you have space expanding in a fourth dimension. And there's a subtle reason for that. And it's purely a choice. It's purely a hypothesis. But it's a purely hypothesis to make it appear that we are not in a special position in the universe. Whereas when we look out into the universe, we seem to be in a very special position to act near the centre of the universe and in the position to observe the whole universe. And, this, and so really, in many ways, it, it's almost as if the, the scientists have contrived the construction of the Big Bang theory to take out the... Um, the obvious evidence that we seem to be in a very special position here and point to the existence of God. Hmm. Um, and so, I, and perhaps I can 
back backtrack a little bit. What what is this singularity? Well, we don't know. It's 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 a one off event, but we can describe the sort of thing that sometimes physicists play with. Now, some people may remember when they did physics at school that you could have a wave tank, and so this is a tank of water in which we can generate waves, much like you see waves when you when you go to the beach. The the water moving up and down. Now, it's possible to generate a wave, so we've got the water moving up and down and travelling along this tank from one side to the other by having a little uh, rod moving up and down at that end of the tank. It's also possible to generate a wave from the other end of the tank so that it comes along. And if you get the frequency or the rate of the cycles the same, um, then those and you and you, you you have more or less an identical system the same end so they have the same amplitude or height of the waves it's possible to send waves from opposite directions and when they meet if they're out of phase by exactly 180 degrees the peak of one wave will correspond exactly to the trough of the other so as the two waves pass over one another the water actually will go flat because they've cancelled each other out. Now, imagine this experiment was going and they set the two waves off and just as the waves were passing and was flat, you walked into the classroom. And so when you walked into the classroom, you would see a flat pond and then suddenly a wave forms out of that pond as if it's come from nowhere. So... My understanding is that with this singularity, they don't know what happened before time. But then suddenly, for some reason, this energy expanded. So that's the sort of scenario that physicists can sort of play around with to explain how you can appear to have nothing and then something appear. So, I mean, it's obviously not water and, and in a tank, but I'm just trying to illustrate there how you can have the appearance of nothing and then something come from it. But it really isn't nothing. What mm. it is is it's, it's just the way things had balanced out at that particular time. Now, the other, the other concept is uh, this expansion in a fourth dimension. And the reason why they have that construct in the Big Bang Theory is imagine this. Imagine that you are blowing up a balloon and with this balloon, you've actually, on the surface of the balloon, you've painted little circles. So say it's a, it's a typical party balloon that might blow to, say, 300 uh, uh, millimetres in diameter, 30 centimetres in diameter, foot across. And when, when it's small, say just a few inches across, you drew little circles on it, maybe a quarter of an inch or five yeah, uh, millimetres in diameter. You drew a whole lot of little circles on this. As you blew it up, those circles will expand, but they'll also move apart, away from one another. And so what happens is the surface of that balloon is two dimensions, but the balloon is expanding in three dimensions. So that way you have it apart. Now, the other thing is, when you've tied off the balloon, where's the centre of the balloon? 
that spherical surface has no centre, you know, ignoring the part where we blew it up, but it, it has no centre. That surface, because it's a surface, has no centre. Some, so mathematically, you can do the same thing with the universe. So that's why they have the universe supposedly expanding in a fourth dimension because that way the universe would have no centre. And that way it would explain why the universe all around us appears to look the same because they say, well, we're just looking over a surface. But the point is there's no evidence for that fourth dimension. We haven't detected a fourth dimension. We, it's just a mathematical construct to meet that particular requirement of the Earth not being in the centre of the universe, where if you look at it logically and you go out there, we're in the centre of the universe. So if it's a, um, a non-observable event, that simply means that it's not science. It's some, somehow it's transitioned out of science. It's a hypothetical construct, yes. But if it can't be tested, it's not technically science, is it? Well, so far we haven't detected it a fourth dimension. Hmm. I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and you're listening to Science Conversations. My guest is Dr. John Ashton, author of Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. John has been examining how carbon-14 dating gives much younger ages to fossils, coal and diamonds, than standard geologic column ages assigned to them. He's also been discussing some significant problems with the Big Bang Theory. We'll go to a break now. When we come back, John will talk about what we actually observe and the implications of this for the Big Bang Theory. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 612 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3abnaustralia, all one word, .org.au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc., PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264, Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. If you've just joined us, I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and you're listening to Science Conversations. My guest is Dr. John Ashton, author of Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. John has examined how carbon-14 dating gives much younger ages to fossils, coal and diamonds than the standard geologic column ages assigned to them. He's also been discussing some significant problems with the Big Bang Theory. For the remainder of this conversation, John will focus on the problems with the Big Bang Theory. John, what are some of the contrived assumptions that support the Big Bang Theory? Well, when the, we have this expansion of energy and then matter um, in the Big Bang, in order to get the, the distribution of uh, matter and so forth as we see in the universe, it must have expanded much more quickly than we would observe under the current laws of gravity and physics as we know them. So in order to meet the requirements of the uh, Big Bang Theory and get the, the, uniformitarian, uh, the, the uniformity of matter that we see across the, the universe, 
then they have to invoke what is called inflation th- uh, energy field and inflation energy field. And that is that essentially there was some energy uh, field that accelerated the universe much faster than we can explain by normal physics. Now, this really uh, gets to me in some way in that, you know, I've had people say, well, we can't teach, you know, uh, creation and that God created uh, the universe in, in science classes because, you know, we can't test that theory. We can't do an experiment. And yet they're happy to invoke and teach the Big Bang theory and invoke um, inflation theory. Again, you, you can't prove that. You can't test that in, in any way. You can't, you can't measure it today. It's just a hypothetical construct that they've had to include in the Big Bang Theory, otherwise it doesn't work. Um, and there's other ones. There's, um, there's dark energy as well. There's uh, dark matter. It's called dark because we haven't been able to detect dark matter yet. Uh, and there's, uh, you know, several uh, reasons uh, for this. The, uh, see, for example, we often hear, okay, the, the first elements formed as gases and they uh, condensed into the, uh, the stars. But we know that, the, that hydrogen gas, helium gas, isn't going to condense unless there is other pre-existing matter for it to form on. And so this is a major quandary for the Big Bang Theory. Um, there's another problem as well. When, according to the Laura Bayron number, if you convert energy into matter, you produce an equal amount of matter and antimatter. Now, to give you an example, we have an electron, that is matter. The antimatter to the electron would be a positron. So when we look out into the universe again uh, at the present time, it's 95% or so matter. We don't see the antimatter that should have formed. And so there are lots of... There are, there are, there are so many major problems that uh, with the Big Bang Theory, it just doesn't fit what we observe. And so what happens is they just contrive new, um, new parameters, hypothetical parameters to try and make it work. But, uh, but prominent scientists and cosmologists have, have spoken out about the Big Bang Theory now for, you know, for more than a decade. Um, you had uh, uh, Halton Arp, who was head of the Max Planck Institute of uh, Astrophysics in Germany. You had Hermann Bondi from the University of Cambridge. You had uh, Thomas Gold, who was professor of uh, astronomy at Cornell University. These were some of the world's leading astronomers that had problems with the Big Bang Theory. Fred Hoyle had problems with the Big Bang Theory. You know, uh, you know he, when he described the Big Bang Theory, when he was describing like, the physics, he said, well, is it a Big Bang sort of thing, meaning it in a... Um, in a, a sense, well, you know, is this some kind of joke sort of thing? Um, so we, we've got we've got major major problems there with um, with the Big Bang theory, and these leading astronomers have, have pointed it out. I mean, there was a a, a letter published in the New Scientist um, uh, some some time ago. Um, I forget the exact uh, date, I think it was around 2004, was published in New Scientist, where a large number of these astronomers signed a letter to New Scientist saying, look, there are major problems with the uh, Big Bang uh, theory. Um, For example, um, 
you know, Dr. Richard Liu at the University of Alabama in Huntsville, they analysed the data from the NASA Wilkinson microwave uh, probe um, and they analysed data from 31 galaxy clusters and they were looking for the evidence of shadows that should have been cast by the foreground galaxies uh, in the cosmic radi- uh, background uh, radiation from the supposed Big Bang. However, not a single shadow associated with any one of the 31 clusters was detected, which is powerful, directly observable evidence that the Big Bang never happened. So, you know, another major problem with the Big Bang was um, is the prediction of, uh, of the satellite galaxies. Now, uh, Dr. Pavel uh, Krupa, he actually studied here in, uh, in, in Australia, at the University of Western Australia there, his physics um, degree there, and then went on to study astronomy at Cambridge University. And he's currently the professor of astronomy at uh, the University of Bonn in Germany. And he pointed out uh, fairly recently that we only observe about 1% of the number of galaxies that the Big Bang Theory predicts. In other words, only a fraction, 1% of the galaxies that we should see predicted by the Big Bang, we actually see. And he said this is, in one of his uh, uh, papers, he writes, this is the clearest evidence that there is something badly wrong with the Big Bang model for the origin of galaxies we observe in space. And as I said, at, at the present time, unless they have this dark matter there, they they can't get the gases to uh, condense. Uh, it, it's sort of like if you imagine if you boil down a a sugar solution or or a salt solution, some some uh, solution in uh, in water in a very very clean beaker. You can concentrate and concentrate and concentrate it down, but you won't form crystals. They won't form. But the moment you put a little seed crystal in there, shung, that the whole thing will then suddenly crystallise. It's the same. Well, it's not exactly the same actually because they're different forces. We're looking at gravity, but it's the same thing with the the problem with these gases. None of these gases are going to have sufficient gravitational attraction to pull them together to then generate the uh, fusion type conditions to fuse the elements, unless there is some sort of matter there to start with. And then, how did that matter form? First of all, we haven't seen it. We can't observe it. And how did it form? You know, there's a huge number of unknowns, yet without those, we, we can't have matter forming. And, um, there's, uh, you know, so the, the, the universities have, um, uh, you know, published uh, data on this. So, you know, on some of the university websites, uh, they have, um, uh, uh, you know, they list the major current problems with the with the Big Bang uh, theory. Um, the um, there's a um, a research professor at the University of Adelaide at the present time, Dr. John Hartnett, um, and uh, he he has a website. It's uh, it's johnhartnett.org, and on that he lists a lot of um, uh, summaries of the. Um, of the evidence that we now have that the Big Bang just doesn't work. It just doesn't fit the observed data. But because these aspects are so highly technical, um, it's very different for for most of us to sort of understand the the significance of the lack of evidence. John, what do we actually observe? And do these observations support or deny the Big Bang theory? 
Well, one of the requirements of the Big Bang theory is the existence of what is called dark matter. Now, this is matter that we we can't detect, but in, exerts a very strong gravitational effect. You see, without the existence of dark matter, there would be no way that the galaxies and stars could form. There's no way that they can form from the initial elements uh, that are gases that are that are formed. No way. So they have to have uh, this uh, dark matter. Now, so far, this dark matter has never been detected. And yet, uh, according to the calculations and predictions of the Big Bang Theory, something like, uh, you know, 95 to 98% of all matter should be this dark matter, and yet we haven't, ex- we haven't detected it. Is it in principle undetectable? I mean, well, we do all sorts of experiments to try to detect it. But on the other hand, we have very strong evidence that it doesn't exist. And this uh, evidence is if all this matter was out there in the universe exerting a gravitational effect, then it should be accelerating our galaxies much faster than they are. So our galaxies rotate about 50 kilometres per second. If all that dark matter existed, we can do the calculations. They, their galaxies should be spinning at hundreds of kilometres per second. Now, there's, there's even there, there, there's more evidence against as well. So, for example, uh, we can uh, the satellite galaxies of both the Milky Way and the nearby Andromeda galaxy uh, are in a disk configuration. Now, this is just as what would be predicted if the gravitating mass is just ordinary matter. If the gravitating mass were actually dark matter, then the satellites would have to be in a random sphere, not in a disk situation. And um, this evidence completely contradicts the dark matter hypothesis, as uh, Professor Pavel uh, Kruper at uh, the University of Bonn points out, and many other uh, researchers have pointed out as well. So here we have direct observational evidence of different types that says the dark matter doesn't exist. We observe behaviour of the plants and the stars in the universe as if there was only just normal gravitational matter that we observe. They only require this dark matter to make the Big Bang Theory work. But there's more. There's other things that um, the Big Bang Theory uh, requires, and um, and that is it, it requires inflation theory to overcome you know a whole lot of, uh, of problems. Now, inflation theory essentially says, or inflation says, that right at the beginning... Uh, gravity was repulsive and, and, and pushed things apart for a very short period of time. Well, I mean, this is totally contrived. There's no you know, evidence whatsoever for that, except that we need to make the, the Big Bang Theory work. Now, the other aspect of the Big Bang Theory is that you've got this expanding uh, universe. But, of course, the, the latest data is showing that, in, in fact, the, the universe isn't, isn't expanding. For example, if, um, if this expansion was really occurring, we would uh, produce uh, time dilation phenomena resulting in two light curve broadening effects for supernovae. However, it's now been discovered from uh, the study of the, the widths of uh, supernovae light curves that there's only a single broadening effect observed. So, so these observations again provide direct evidence that the Big Bang uh, didn't happen. 
Um, and again, the um, observed surface brightness measurements of the galaxies is consistent with the the evidence that um, the Big Bang didn't happen, that we have uh, instead a, a, a relatively steady state universe. So these are all data that we can actually measure right at the moment. You know, the surface brightness of, uh, of objects uh, per unit area in the sky measured as photons per second is a constant with increasing distance for similar objects at, at those distances. Um, the Big Bang, on the other hand, ex- uh, predicting an expanding universe, predicts that surface brightness, as defined above, um, would mean that the more distant objects actually would appear bigger. Um, so it, these observations show that the and and they've got many observations of surface brightness because you know we've been doing this for a long time now, and what we find is that when we measure the surface brightness. The measurements show us that they exactly concur with a non-expanding universe, and this is in a sharp contradiction to the Big Bang. And again, you know, they've invoked all all sorts of you know explanations to try and 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 refute this. So, you know, we we have major major problems uh, with with the Big Bang theory. Um, and another one is um, just for the for the Big Bang uh, to produce even the first elementary particles, uh, we have to have what are called um, the grand unified theories or, or guts. Uh, and what these are saying is that, and the uh, what they're proposing is in order to make the Big Bang theory work, they have to propose that initially in this very hot state there was no difference between the, uh, the strong and weak nuclear forces and electromagnetic forces. But we have no evidence for that. They're, they've just got to assume that, otherwise it, it, it doesn't work. But if they do assume that, that they're all, all together uh, at that time, then when they spin out the mathematics and do their uh, predictions, then what happens is they predict that very massive particles should be formed called magnetic monopoles, and there should, these should be heaps of these distributed out throughout the universe. But again, these have never been detected. So the bottom line is this. The Big Bang Theory makes... You know, as, as this attempt to explain how our universe came here, but just about everywhere we look, the evidence for it has failed. Uh, another example would be the uh, the prediction of uh, the formation of the lighter elements. So that's deuterium, uh, helium, and lithium. From the Big Bang calculations, we can predict that. Um, in the early stars, for example, that we see like way in the distance, the say the the level of lithium should be quite high, but um, the, the the from the the density measurements and and these sort of things that we uh, can measure now and and the uh, we find that the predictions for deuterium, lithium seven, and helium four are in contradiction not only with the predictions but also with the predictions relative to each other. And so some scientists have now gone as far as to say the chance that the Big Bang Theory is actually correct, just on the basis of the major problems with predicting lithium uh, uh, abundance in the, in the universe, the, the chance of the theory of being correct is less than one in 100 trillion. So you've got very poor chances uh, just on the basis of what it predicts for the abundance of lithium. 
So, as I said, uh, there, there are other things, uh, other major problems. When we look out in space, right, we've, we've got these gal- the galaxies and, and the way they're layered. Um, they're, they're, that means that the matter has had to come together. Now, when we do the basic calculations, it re- would require hundreds of billions of years for the galaxies to align and to separate themselves and, and come together the way they are. But in actual fact, of course, the calculations of the Big Bang Theory, it's about, you know, I think they tune fine-tune it down to about 13.8, you know, billion years. But hang on, we observed all this matter has sorted itself. Um, another one is the horizon problem uh, that we've got. So energy is constrained, the, the speed at which energy can travel is constrained by the speed of light. That's the, the maximum rate at which energy can travel. So the Big Bang theory is, is sort of a random process because that's one of the things that underpin the, the whole uh, concept of the Big Bang Theory. It has to be random, and otherwise you're invoking an intelligent designer sort of thing and design. But if it was random and, the, and this matter is forming randomly, according to the uh, dark matter theory, then how come we've got all this energy is so equally distributed? Uh, around the universe. There isn't enough time for the, if energy travels at the speed of light, for it to redistribute itself. So that's the horizon problem. And so that's why they have to invoke um, dark energy. And and again, this massive inflation to try and solve all these problems um, using hypothetical constructs. Because when we look at the predictions of the Big Bang, and when we look out there, what we actually observe, in just about every area, it contradicts what the theory predicts. And that's why, as I mentioned earlier, there are literally hundreds of scientists who have uh, made public the fact that they oppose the Big Bang and that it's ridiculous to con- continue with this theory because there's so much evidence against the theory actually being a viable explanation for our universe. But when we look at creation, it fits the data perfectly. It, it, it's amazing how well the creation model fits what we observe out there. I'm Dr Barry Harker, and you've been listening to Science Conversations. My guest is Dr John Ashton, author of Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. John has described how carbon-14 dating gives much younger ages to fossils, coal and diamonds than standard geologic column ages assigned to them. He's also outlined some significant problems with the Big Bang Theory. Next week, our conversation will be concerned with some highly qualified scientists who reject Darwin's theory of evolution. Don't miss it. Bye for now and God bless you. (laughs) 